0: Uh, When it comes to the introduction at the top, uh, will I wait for you to introduce me or jump in and introduce myself?
1: Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Did You Do Your Homework, the podcast that connects... mm, largely academic ideas to popular culture uh, assigns you homework and makes it fun again or possibly for the first time. Uh, My name is Martha Sullivan. I'm one of your wonderful co-hosts for today. And this week, um, in addition to professional pony trainer, I have found myself expanding my milieu into uh, farming, particularly hot pepper farming to make pepper jelly. Uh, I am joined today by my other co-host...
2: I'm uh, Pete Romberg. I'm a cookie baker, orange chicken maker, and soon-to-be rock climber. Uh, That's my plan for later this afternoon.
1: Oh, exciting. Mm -hmm. Uh, And today we are very excited to be joined by a friend of the show and fellow podcaster, Josh Brown. Thank you, Josh, so much for joining us.
0: Oh, thanks for having me. Uh, as for me, I uh, drive for a Lyft, and because of that, uh, when I'm not taking college classes, I spend probably eighty-five percent of my waking hours consuming some form of media. So this is
1: my, <laughs> my jealousy knows no bounds. If I could, you know, if I could get away with watching movies eight hours of the day, I think that I would.
0: Yeah, if it's not a movie, it's an audiobook or a video game or even the radio. I mean, radio listening is media consumption.
1: Absolutely. It's just not one that I've engaged with in several years. I actually I saw something uh, kind of depressing. I used to listen to uh, 101.9, a Chicago channel with fairly, uh, f- with fairly f- frequent regularity. Um, but it's been so long that I totally missed like some horrible scandal that happened with one of the co-hosts. I saw a billboard, um, without her and I got very, very confused.
0: Ah, uh, you're don't... speaking of Kathy Hart.
1: Yes. I was going to say, I don't know if, if either of you are mixed listeners, but I totally missed the Kathy Hart sequence of events until it had already like come and gone.
2: You know, when I'm down in Chicago, I'm, uh, Basically purely XRT listener. And up here in Milwaukee we've got eighty eight nine, which is just good, uh independent uh public radio. Uh like music public radio, not you know, NPR.
1: Yeah, but Pete, don't lie to us. How frequently do you listen to NPR? Uh podcasts quite a bit. <laughs> <laughs> uh anyway. So to kick things off before we get into the meat of our conversation. It is time for us to present to you our listeners without editing for uh, what's the word I'm looking for guilty
0: Guilty pleasure pleasure
1: factor or any shame or embarrassment that you might that we might feel. This is a relatively judgment-free zone, but we want to know what's the last thing that you consumed? What is the last piece of media? The last thing that you enjoyed? Um, I'm going to go first, since I accidentally gave more of a rambling introduction to myself uh, at the beginning, to say that because uh, Breath of the Wild became a little bit stressful for me there for a while, I have been cooling off by playing an unconscionable amount of Stardew Valley.
2: How did uh, Breath of the Wild become stressful?
1: Uh, So I'm in a part where I either need to cook a whole lot of food that prevents me from freezing to death or figure out if I can buy armor that prevents me from freezing to death, Mm. I have to go over a mountain. And environment is important in Breath of the Wild. So if you are in an area that is freezing and you are ill-equipped for the cold, uh, after a while, you just kind of die.
0: You just start losing hearts or is there some sort of like shivering, or I haven't actually played Breath of the Wild. and yeah, not another. Uh,
1: so, yeah, you um, if you pull up the menu, your link icon is shivering, and then periodically, I think it happens every thirty or forty-five seconds, you lose half a heart. Hmm. And you get a message that's like, "You're really cold." <laughs> I don't remember exactly what the the message is, but the game tells you what's going on. It doesn't just Leave you to wonder. You don't just why start slowly dying for dying. no reason. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I've been playing Stardew Valley, which is thoroughly addictive. Um, the The way that the days go by, it's super easy to say, well, I'll just play one more day. And then four hours later, um, suddenly it's a new season. Um, but yeah, I'm finding that one very relaxing.
2: Is it like a farming app?
1: Yes. Cool. Well, it's not an app, it's oh, a, a game. console game. Yeah. Um but yeah, you play as a, a uh you inherit a farmer from your or a farm from your grandfather and you move to this little town called Stardew Valley and it's full of villagers that you can make friends with and some of whom you can marry and otherwise it's just growing stuff on your farm. I've just gotten to the point where um I have a chicken coop, but I just built a barn so I can get cows to uh make cheese. Um Yeah, there are four seasons of twenty-eight days apiece. And each day lasts like fifteen minutes in real time.
2: Oh, that that seems really addictive.
0: Uh, it it is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, probably unsurprisingly to you, Martha, in that game, I ended up marrying Abigail, the purple-haired gamer chick.
1: Yes, Bill is very uh, Bill is being very persistent, uh, trying to get Abigail's attention. <laughs> she eats rocks. I don't understand. Yeah, it's her- a little weird. I gave her a piece of chords and she was like, Ooh, this looks delicious and I was like, Abigail, are you are you okay? Uh Pete, tell us what you have been enjoying most uh, recently.
2: Well as that's usual.
1: Not
2: our right. Uh as usual I have uh just recently actually wrapped up doing the homework. Um and so in between finishing watching Princess Mononoke and starting to record this, uh, I've been listening to the Phantom Thread soundtrack. Um that's Johnny Greenwood. I heard
1: this. I've heard it's really good.
2: It's incredible. Um, Johnny Greenwood, who has done, I think, all of Paul Thomas Anderson's soundtracks now since There Will Be Blood. Um, he's the I think, guitarist, but maybe bassist for Radiohead. Uh, but when he does these soundtracks, they're just absolutely lush, uh, instrumental, orchestral, um, gorgeous violin. Y- your mileage may vary on the movie, The Phantom Thread. I particularly enjoyed it, but I am... Very ready to admit that it's it's not something that, like, necessarily other people will like, but the soundtrack is lush and gorgeous, and, uh, you know, you don't even need to see the movie to enjoy it as long as you like sort of more classical music. It's very relaxing.
1: Well, we'll find out how much I liked it. I just bought my tickets to the AMC Oscar Movie Marathon, mm. so I will... Uh, have a chance to keep that one pretty soon yeah
2: i, I think the score has been nominated uh, for an oscar yes and it is deserved
1: well and phantom thread was nominated for best picture so. right
2: right i'll i'll definitely be curious on your take on that uh <laughs> i think uh well, we'll i'll wait for, i to wait till you see it uh before i go any further on that
1: and josh why don't you share with the class what uh you have been enjoying most recently
0: I was grinning madly when you were talking about playing video games that involve both farming and freezing to death, because what I've been playing pretty much constantly in between doing the homework and preparing for other shows is a game that features both heavily. It's a <laughs> PC you
1: great, taste g- that taste great together.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's a PC game called Banished, which is a late medieval survival city builder. Now, most city builders, you make your buildings, your people reproduce and whatnot, but you don't really have to worry too much unless you have disasters turned on and a fire or something ravages your town. Banished is not that sort of game. Banished, you have to manage uh, clothes and birth rates, and food production, and tool production. Otherwise, it will be very, very easy when there's either a generational shift, a food shortage, a disaster for your little community to go into a death spiral, and everybody just dies.
1: Please don't ever tell my husband that this game exists.
0: <laughs> yeah, already I'm like, hmm, is it on Steam? It is on Steam. Hmm. So I should also probably not tell your husband that I have a spare key for it in my humble account.
1: Well, I mean, I love Bill, so you should, but also I love Bill, so I'm worried about never seeing
0: him again. Yeah, I, if the uh, amount of long-term planning, which is not typically something I'm particularly known for, um, is kind of an essential skill for the game, and now on my third or fourth try, I've actually gotten a uh, what seems to be a stable internal economy going, where I'm able to I don't know, 50, 60 years in several generations down the line since villagers age four years for every year. They actually accumulate a year of age each season. Hmm. Uh, it looks like uh, I'm going to be able to crack the two, three hundred population without everybody eating too much or not having enough clothes and freezing to death, etc. Uh, before I go
2: far too deeply down uh, this game rabbit hole about how long would like did that take you, for example? So, I know my, how much I'm about to invest in it.
0: <laughs> uh, my current run, uh, my, I think I'm on my 57th year, is probably representative of about 25 ish hours of gameplay, maybe a oh, little less. No. Okay.
1: <laughs> so, Pete is doomed. That's mm-hmm. <laughs> what we just found out. See you all in a month. <laughs> Okay, so today, for our episode proper, we are going to be talking about formative media. Now, what I mean when I say formative media, these are the stories and the pop culture that we consumed as children that have in some way affected how we consume stories or the kinds of media that we like. Um, I'm pretty fond of calling something like a formative story, uh most re- the most recent example I can think of is um during our top ten episode uh when I referred to Stephen King's It as being a formative book for me to read as a child. Um which, you know, take that uh, however <laughs> however you want, whether or not that was a good thing or a bad thing. Um reading that book when I was eleven or twelve, um, you know, I you you can see a lot of kind of stephen king's hallmarks in the stories in the books that i continue to read and enjoy Um, so i wanted to take kind of a deep dive into our histories and kind of see uh, if we can track how the things that we loved as kids affect um you know whether it's affect the homework that you and i pick for the episodes pete or just the stuff that we continue to love and continue to consume um I think that we should start with Pete. Cool. Because I have kind of, well, I don't know if I have a lot to say, but I definitely have some thoughts about this one.
2: Right. So I assigned uh, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, 1950 novel by C.S. Lewis. We're all familiar with the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Um, this is your Narnia story. Uh, I assigned it for a few reasons. Uh, the first is that I am currently watching, uh, I just finished season one and I'm starting season two of The Magicians, uh, sci-fi show based on a book series that I love that has a Narnia-esque world as sort of like a foundational element of it, um, and it's very intentionally a Narnia callback, um. So so I chose it for the one reason, because I'm still consuming media that is related to Narnia, uh, and also because it just is serving as a stand-in for uh, fantasy literature in general. Um, around the time I, I got into the Narnia series, um, and the first one of them I actually read was The Magician's Nephew, uh, not The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, but I felt that The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe was more uh, representative uh, example. Uh, so... I, I started getting into this at around the same time I was also getting into series like The Dark is Rising um, and other, you know, sort of uh, kids fantasy books. Simultaneously, I was getting into a lot of uh, sci-fi and specifically Star Wars books. So this would all be around um, third grade for me, third and fourth grade. And since then, you know, fantasy and sci-fi has been very much a linchpin of uh, things I consume. So, you know, there's a clear and traceable track from, Uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe up to, you know, the Silmarillion, uh, and then to Deconstructions like the Magicians.
1: It's interesting that you name the Silmarillion in there next to this one, because my overwhelming feeling both the first time that I read this book, when I was like 10 or 11, and now, is that it was so unbearably dry.
2: Oh, it's so British. I forgot how (laughs) mindlessly, or not mindlessly, but overwhelmingly British this is. It's also deeply rooted in the uh, gender stereotypes of 1950s Britain. Um, So in many ways, it hasn't aged terribly well.
1: Josh, had you read this one as a kid?
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, this book was the first memory I have of being genuinely upset to the point of tears at a character death. When Aslan died, I remember crying. Uh, I was fairly young when I read this. Probably first time in 1982, Uh, and it was one of, I'd say, probably the first, I don't know, dozen or so books, including The Hobbit, that didn't have pictures in it. Um, that I read and I I appreciate that you said that you, uh, chose this because of its relationship to the magicians, because this is my first reread of the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe since I completed the magicians trilogy between October and December of last year. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, same. I, I hadn't like picked up any of the Narnia books since, you know, since I was a kid. So it was definitely interesting coming back and interesting coming back post the magicians.
1: Um, yeah, absolutely. I, I just want to put out that while this book was not a, was not an important part of my uh, kind of literary childhood, the nineteen eighty eight film version of this movie, which hmm. was a BBC like miniseries, I think
2: was it live action. Yes. Hmm. I have vague memories of this.
1: I watched that. I watched like the the recut version. They cut it into like a two hour movie. And I watched that like eight or ten times. I mean, that was the version of this story, which I think was one of the reasons why when I read the book, I was like, Oh, this is this is kinda this is kinda boring actually, <laughs> because I had seen um the film version first and I was at a young enough age that you know, having the the cinematic version in my head was actually fairly damaging to my enjoyment of it as a book. Although rereading it, um, I I don't think it has aged super well. No. At least the the prose style, at least the prose style that it was written in. The story is biblically ageless, um, but I had a very hard time with the uh, the narration.
2: I have to say, I was a little surprised at how little actually happens in the book. Um, you know, I, I, I remember so many of the moments of it as moments, but that's kind of all the book is. Uh, and there wasn't a whole lot in between the things I did remember. Um, so it was sort of interesting to come back and realize how quickly I was flying through it. Uh, and also just because it's like only a few things happen once they actually get into Narnia.
0: That was my experience as well. Uh, I was only able to find a copy of it because somehow I lost my copy specifically of Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, I had to get the collected Chronicles of Narnia from the library because the single volume was checked out. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was shocked at how quickly I blasted through the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe as a percentage of the, whole, uh, the total book and as how much time I had to put into it. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, Josh, why don't you tell us a little bit about... Uh, your homework assignment for today? Uh,
0: Assigning homework for this episode was actually a little bit tricky for me. Um, The thing about a lot of the formative media for my generation, Generation X, is it's been so put into the culture of every generation beyond mine, it's been fetishized and repackaged and remade that like, if we're talking about Raiders of the Lost Ark or Ghostbusters or whatever, it almost seems like we're trotting over ground that already has really, really deep tracks. So I wanted to instead take something that was important to me, but still familiar enough that everyone probably has heard of it and serves as kind of a stand-in for just reading in general, because there's a clear path from the children's books I've been reading ever since I can remember, through The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, to Dungeons & Dragons, to, like, the rest of my life to today.
2: Well, I, I like how you bring up the idea of, like, the fetishization of uh, 80s and Gen X pop culture, because fairly soon we're going to be treated to, like, the the apotheosis of that which is steven spielberg directing ready player one right um, which is basically just all of that in a single condensed form
1: yeah josh i'm kind of interested and i i don't mean to ask this in a like haha you're old kind of way <laughs> um i really don't um but when you hear so i i see a lot of comments on my facebook and social media and all of that like when Um, a new Transformers movie comes out or like when they redid Star Trek, I'll see people who are, you know, six, seven years younger than me talking about like, oh, I hope they don't ruin my childhood. Do you ever feel like, I don't know, like people are appropriating the things that you actually did grow up with because they've been repackaged and repurposed so many times?
0: Well, I don't know. I, I think that there's a couple of components to that. I think a lot of the people who have that ruining my childhood argument don't have a honest look at what the media they consumed as children actually is. Uh, I'm frequently at odds with members of my generation who are applying much tougher standards to modern media that the stuff we grew up with, if you applied those same standards, a lot of the stuff just wouldn't hold up. Uh, tr- try and take the critical lens that people are throwing at the new Star Wars movies and throw them at Knight Rider, and Knight Rider is just obliterated.
1: <laughs> well, and let's be fair. Let's apply the same critical lens of to the new Star Wars movie to the old Star Wars movies.
0: Absolutely. I wasn't going to go that far, <laughs> but I don't disagree with you.
1: <laughs> As somebody who passionately loves the new Star Wars movies and only ever felt um, kind of genre appreciative about the old movies. I'm happy to throw that gauntlet out <laughs> for sure.
0: And uh, I think that uh, a lot of people have these various arguments about uh, what was so good and what their sacred cows are, and how the newer incarnations are inherently inferior that are not necessarily intellectually honest. There's this uh, perception that, oh, uh, Hollywood is just doing remakes and retreads and it's all garbage. But then you look at people's media consumption habits and when something brand new that isn't an adaptation, that isn't a sequel, that isn't a remake comes out, it doesn't perform as well as these other kinds of familiar media. And that's something when you get into your other questions, I think we're going to revisit quite a bit.
1: I agree. Uh, Now, Josh, for your homework assignment, you uh, asked us to watch... Uh, the, if you give a us a cookie episode of reading rainbow a 1983 TV show created by Cecily Truett, Lancet and Larry Lancet and presented by the incomparable, although occasionally salty LeVar Burton.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's a good way to put it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Reading rainbow is one of those PBS shows that went on. So it actually went on longer than I thought it did. It, It started, uh, in 1983 where i mean i'm i'm old but i was 7 years old when this thing started and it only ended heck i'd already met my now wife by the time it was going off the air
2: i was shocked reading the wiki at how long this has had been going on officially and that it's apparently uh, had some more recent legal uh, disputes as as they tried to reboot it for the the app generation
0: right yeah, that was another thing is uh, because uh, on my other show we talk about uh, remakes, this is one because of those legal troubles I had not gotten the opportunity to talk about yet because the remake <clears throat> hasn't dropped. So uh, I, I, the combination of the uh, children's books – to teach greater lessons about the world and having both of those as a component of the show, I had very strong, but very vague and non-specific memories of this show. So I was glad to actually take a specific look, watch episodes that I probably haven't seen in 30 plus years.
2: What led you to, uh, if you choose the mouse, a cookie as the, like the touchstone episode?
0: Uh, in the initial YouTube channel I, I, uh, that we found to watch some of these old episodes, there was a long list of uh, titles, mm-hmm. and that was the one where I actually remembered the children's book. Later, I found other channels that had earlier seasons that had more familiar titles, and that. Uh, represent the rest of my watching, preparing for this show. But I found it interesting that my experience isn't alone because on that particular YouTube channel, if you sort by number of views, if you give a mouse a cookie was the one that was viewed the most.
1: Mm -hmm. Oh, interesting.
2: Yeah. I mean, that's a perennial delightful book too. So I I was really happy that you chose that as the touchstone book. Uh, Like you skimming through the, the titles, there were a lot where I'm like, I've never heard of that before. Um, right, but it was nice to go back and and re-listen to. I guess uh, if you give a mouse a cookie, um, and then the other two I li- uh, watched, uh, I was surprised. My my memory of reading Rainbow is that there was a lot more actual book talk happening, but I was surprised at how little there was each episode.
0: Um, yeah, it's about two thirds live action and uh, about one third of the book reading and book uh, reviews or recommendations. Mm-hmm.
1: So I had never watched i did not grow up with reading rainbow i had never actually watched an episode of it before this hmm. um i was a wishbone girl we watched a lot of wishbone um which it had a similar concept only instead of reading the picture books you had a small terrier re- reenacting like works of literature um I really loved the the parts of these episodes that I watched. I really loved that they let kids talk about books that they like and give actual kids a chance to recommend stuff to read. Like in terms of taking ownership over literature, like that's that's so there's nothing more valuable from a um from somebody who recommends books for a living as part of my job. There's nothing more valuable than a peer review mm-hmm. when trying to get a kid to read a book. So I, I thought that that was my favorite part of the episodes that I watched, was getting to watch little kids recommend books on their own.
2: <laughs> they were also like delightfully earnest and excited about the books they were into, and it being like were... on TV to do it, it was kind of delightful.
1: It was so good. <laughs>
0: I was also a little surprised. Uh, I delved into some of the early seasons. And in fact, I watched the first ever episode, which focused on a children's book called hard times and hard times is it's dark. It's about a little boy who wants to buy a dog, but his uh, family is struggling with poverty and his father loses his job. And I, I was surprised because it's been so many, many years since I read a picture book at uh, how real and hard-hitting uh, the themes were in this a book that's aimed at five to seven-year-olds. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I watched um, Martha Speaks, which I picked because her name is like my name and that seemed like logic that child me also might have used to pick out a book to read. Um, I got a very mr rogers feeling from the um like the sort of real life parallels that they go into um like when they're talking about chain events and if you give a us a cookie and then later when you get to go to the bowling ball factory and actually see how bowling balls are made um felt very uh very mr rogers to me which in a good way. I mean, it didn't feel derivative. It was just, this is where I kind of remember stuff like this happening in my children's programming.
2: Yeah, I I yeah. liked how they were able to like use the story as a touchstone to to launch into, you know, a, a myriad of other topics. Um, like you said with Give a Mouse a Cookie, it's got the um, the idea of like chain events and then some uh, heavy industry and then some weird domino dude uh, all like connected to that idea um another episode i watched was stella luna because i remember that book and enjoying it um and they spent the entire time talking about bats and like having some bat experts on um going into a cave full of bats so it was like it was very different than if you give a mouse a cookie um in the sense of like the ground that they're covering um So seems like it had a lot of like neat flexibility that could get kids, you know, with all sorts of interests, um, to be interested.
1: Well, and Josh, to your earlier point about um, the picture book covering a very very serious topic, I really liked that the show takes children's literature seriously because I think it's easy to brush picture books off sometimes as just being like, oh, those are for little kids. Um, But I think the quality ones. Are just like any other genre of literature where they can really open up a conversation uh, between you and the kid that you're reading with. Um, and having all of these like real life examples and real world connections, I think, gives the books that they're reading that much more, not gravity, because it, we're still talking about a book where a tiny mouse comes in and like disrupts a child's life for a day, um, but at least more of a reason to. Like, get invested and talk about them and not, I guess, just sort of brush them off for being a picture book made for a child.
0: Yeah, I they do a really good job, even with the darker ones, like Hard Times, of relating it to things that a child has gone through uh, repeating the central theme, reinforcing it, and then putting a positive spin where even though things are sad sometimes, we don't always get what we want. These are some things we can do and linking the love of reading to coping with life lessons that are going to be familiar to a wide variety of children in different backgrounds.
1: Well, and as a, you know, going back to your earlier point about how this show was one of the, was part of your pathway just to a love of reading in general, I think it, it does a lot of work showing the kids who are watching it how reading and how stories can be relevant to them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um, Like how they can see themselves in books or how books can help them maybe work through a problem. You know, all of these things that encourage continued interaction with books and encourage uh, the development of you know, a lifetime of literacy to steal one of my profession's uh, kind of guiding keywords <laughs> or key phrases. I will say that visually it the show has suffered.
2: <laughs> yeah, you didn't like uh, Lavar Burton's amazing t-shirt in the bowling alley? Or all of their amazing costumes in the I'm bowling alley? I'm just saying
1: it's not hard to to realize this show was made in 1983
0: (laughs) (laughs) for sure these are going to be vhs rips to low res youtube Mm -hmm. uh and that probably doesn't help the 35 year old production values it doesn't do it any favors
1: however i did find the message to be quite on point um and obviously you can't live in our pop culture society and not have heard of reading rainbow I had never experienced it before in my life, and it was really cool to have an excuse to watch a couple episodes.
2: Honestly, I almost liked the fact that it was like a VHS rip and it, clearly a, a product of the 80s and 90s uh, as an assignment for formative media, because that's what it, you know our formative media looked like then.
1: Mm-hmm. A little bit meta. Uh, So for today, for this episode, I assigned you all uh, Princess Mononoke, which was a 1997 film directed by Hayao Miyazaki, produced by Studio Ghibli. Um, I believe it had an American release of 2001. That's the year that I remember uh, seeing it in the theater. Uh, And specifically, I wanted you guys to watch the English dub version. Um, I know that particularly Japanese animated features... Uh, The general rule is subs, not dubs. Um, But I think that the Studio Ghibli films tend to get incredible voice casting. And the format that I saw this originally in was the English version. So for accuracy, it had to be that one. Uh, And it features, you know, as I said, excellent cast. Uh, This one features such actors as Billy Crudup in the starring role as Prince Ashitaka. Uh, Claire Danes as the titular son or Princess Mononoke. Billy Bob Thornton as an incredibly ugly monk, uh, Minnie Driver, and Gillian Anderson in possibly my favorite role, (laughs) uh, the Big Mama Wolf. Uh, So I saw this movie in the theater. I think it was at the Music Box in Chicago, which is a little indie movie theater for any of our listeners who may not be in Chicago. Uh, They get a lot of small run films or small release stuff. Um, I was 14, um and i had never seen an animated movie that could be this big before that was that was the big thing that i remember was that it was a story um it was an epic story on a scale that i'd never seen in animation before because up until that point the animated stuff that i'd seen was largely like disney movies um which are excellent films but they don't tell huge sweeping epic stories, like the one that we're talking about here. It was right at the start of me getting into anime as a medium. So I think the Studio Ghibli movies, how accessible and easy they are to find, uh, had a lot to do with that for me. Um, And it's weird, and it's mythical, and it's magical, and it's a lot of things that I continue to really enjoy in the stories that I uh that i consume i tend to like stuff that is weird and fantastical uh and i think a lot of that you know has to do with the impact that seeing this movie and seeing it on a big screen uh made with me
2: Uh, i agree at the weirdness i i kind of forgot just how you know, big and, and weird this movie was, um, both in terms of, like, premise and in terms of the art. Um, like, the, the tentacle corruption, I guess, uh, is really cool and also creepy-looking. Um, I, I was realizing, as you were sort of describing your memory of this, of, of uh, consuming this for the first time, I've seen this before, I cannot tell you for the life of me when I first saw it. Um, It's just sort of something that I had certainly consumed and was, like, bubbling around in in the background of my pop culture consumption, but I don't have a good, uh, you know, the story of, like, the first time I sat down and watched it. Um,
1: Well, I honestly, I would have been surprised if either of you, and I am jumping in before Josh has a chance to weigh in, I would have been surprised if either of you had told me you hadn't seen it before because I think that the release of this one of Princess Mononoke was kind of the start of Studio Ghibli being as big as it is has gotten to be in right the US like, yeah. before I think um my neighbor Totoro came out technically before but I I think that Princess Mononoke was the first critically acclaimed Studio Ghibli film to kind of gain a lot of steam um and is the reason that um their work has really you know landed the way that it has
2: it paved the road for spirited away which is where studio ghibli i think really like took off
1: absolutely um and also all three of us were nerds in high school so again <laughs> Well, I guess when this one came out, Josh, you weren't still in high school, but...
0: No, I um, think I was already post-college. <laughs> I'd been working at Hobbytown for four years by the time this came out, I think.
1: But just to give you guys sort of a snapshot of the impact that this movie made on me, uh, when it came out on video, and it did initially come out on VHS, it was one of the first movies to kind of get released in both VHS and DVD format, I rented this movie from Blockbuster every weekend for at least 8 weeks and possibly more. Wow. I watched this movie twice a weekend every weekend for 2 to 3 solid months. <laughs> wow. Um and and I remember that it was on VHS because I I watched it after the rest of my family had already gone to bed because my parents were like, "No, seriously, we're not watching this movie again." Um and I would fall asleep sometimes before it had finished. And I have memories of waking up after the DVD or after the VHS had finished, rewound itself. And suddenly Richard Simmons exercise videos were playing on the TV. <laughs> because this, at this point it was like one or two in the morning.
2: <laughs> that is like a perfect encapsulation of 2001.
1: I know. My parents bought this movie for me on DVD for Easter because they didn't want to pay Blockbuster anymore so that I could keep watching it.
0: I remember renting this shortly after it came out on video. I didn't see it on the big screen, and I remembered liking it, but my memories were so, so fuzzy. The only thing I had a real clear memory of were uh, the—I just—Kodama's.
1: the Kadama Are, are those yeah. the, uh,
0: the little like head tilty guys? Yeah, with
1: the clicky heads. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah.
0: That was all I really remembered about the film. And uh, re-watching it, there were a few things that immediately jumped out at me. Uh, one is we've become so used to in all of our media, the uh, Hollywood formula structure. It transcends comedy, action, whatever the uh, specific plot beats and plot elements happening down to the second across all movies, that it jumps out at you when something isn't shot according to that formula. The pacing is different, the act structure is different. The way the story is told makes you pay attention because things don't happen when you expect them to happen.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And the second thing I noticed is that it was unique uh, outside of a lot of the other Studio Ghibli stuff In that uh, with a couple of exceptions, uh, most of the forces that uh, are against each other, they don't take the easy way out, uh, humans, bad nature, good. You've got four or five different sides. And for the most part, you can see where each of them is coming from and each of them have some good and some evil, but they're pitted against each other because of the circumstances that they're in.
1: The fact that by the end of the movie, you actually are rooting for the people that live in Irontown, who up until that point have been, like, they're the ones destroying the forest and causing all of, like, manufacturing to pollute everything and, you know, are positioned to be the, the people that you want to see lose. The fact that by the end of the movie, you're rooting for them to rebuild and, you know, you get worried for Lady Eboshi, or at least I did. Um, I think is masterful storytelling.
2: When And going back, Josh, to what you were saying about not following the Hollywood beats, I think one way it, it does that is by giving us time with each of the various, um, you know, both people and also sort of just sides. Like, we spend enough time in Irontown that we, we come to empathize and care about them. We spend enough time with, um, you know, the wolves that we care about them. So it, it's... I I think those two things um, are definitely related to each other.
0: Yeah. And even a character like Jigo, Billy Bob Thornton's selfish monk, uh, he is a villainous character, but he isn't one note. You kind of understand he has a particular worldview and he's getting pressure from someone who's very powerful and he believes this is the way the world works, so he may as well satisfy those who are pressuring him and take everything for himself. Even his selfishness, there's a perspective where you don't necessarily empathize with him, but he's not just a one note villain. I think maybe the only one note villains are going to be the samurai thugs. They, we don't really get their perspective from uh, Lord. I forget the Lord's name. Asana. Yeah, Lord Asano's uh, Samurai. They're the only ones that we don't really have the opportunity to sympathize because our uh, Ashitaka is sort of our tour guide through the various characters. He even meets Jigo early in the film. And before we even know he's going to be important in, to the finale, we get to see his perspective as well as Irontown and the uh, forest. Well, and
1: even Jigo by the end of the movie is, you know, he... Even he gets his moment to do the right thing, mm-hmm. and at the end, his plan doesn't work out. But he's so chill about it yeah. that, like, there's no, there's no, oh, I got to get revenge or there's no anger. It's just, well, that didn't work out. Guess I gotta, guess I gotta move on to the next thing.
2: And a a plus to Billy Bob Thornton. Uh, you know, Martha, you started this by extolling the the cast. And across the board, they were great, but Billy Bob Thornton, like, when I started rewatching this, I immediately remembered him doing the voice for that character. Like, I didn't know who Billy Bob Thornton was when I saw this the first time, I'm sure. Uh, but I distinctly remembered, like, that voice for that character. Um, iconic. Great.
1: I also just quick want to say, in terms of how well it holds up, I mean, obviously this is a message that is still relevant today, but visually... Um, there are a handful of early, early Studio Ghibli movies that you can tell their age. Like, they, the animation is clearly dated. Um, I do not believe that is true for this movie. I think this movie is just as beautiful now as it was when I saw it the first time, uh, which is impressive considering it came out um, in 97.
0: I and agree. Even- and- oh.
1: I was just going to say, even movies like, uh, even other 97 animated movies like, say, Toy Story, Mm. I think are starting to show a little wear on the edges. Uh,
0: Not only do I agree with your point, I'll go one step further. There are a couple of iconic landmark pieces for Americans' consumption of anime. And I would say this stands pretty close to alone in how well it's aged. If you go back and watch Ghost in the Shell or go back and watch Akira they like you have to put on the, okay, I'm giving, I'm grading on the curve for when it was made glasses in order to appreciate it. And I don't think you have to do that at all with princess Mononoke.
1: No, I agree. I don't know if it's because they used very, very minimal uh, CGI animation or what, but I think that, um, you know, it has all of those hallmarks of a studio Ghibli feature, the beautiful hand-painted backgrounds, um, the really vibrant color and i don't i'm thinking specifically of nausicaa the valley of the wind which is a story that i love and a movie that just almost is painful to watch at this point um and i am just very impressed at how princess mononoke looks just about as good as it did when i saw it on a big screen um josh you brought up something That you wanted to return to. And now I'm having trouble remembering what the point was.
0: Uh, Well, it comes into your question uh, for discussion. And it was such a good question that uh, I'm just going to read it straight off of the show notes. What place does nostalgia have in our personal media consumption? And why do we think it's gotten to be such a huge factor in pop culture at large? Um, This is a question that is intensely interesting to me mainly because uh my answer to the question i'm giving a panel in two weeks at lodgecon in Pietone answering this exact question so i was delighted to see it in the show notes that's awesome um we are in an era they they call it peak tv but i'd argue it's peak media in general where the main uh kind of bottleneck isn't cost anymore. It's there are only so many free hours any person can have in a day to consume media. And how do you decide with a virtually for our lifespan, infinite amount of media to watch and rewatch what you consume? And answering that question, how people make those decisions I think a lot of it, you see stuff like Stranger Things and you see these remakes and reimaginings. If you don't hear something as amazing through word of mouth from people you trust, what you end up going for is what's familiar, whether that's something that is a story you already know or remember in some way and you want to see it again in a new format, or whether that is ideas and uh elements that you're familiar with packaged in a different way something like stranger things or the ready player one that we've already sort of touched on
1: that's a fascinating point to me because i am i am a person for whom like remakes and reboots they don't bother me but i would almost always rather well i say that i would almost always rather hear about like a really stellar original property but then that's the kind of thing where i have to stop and think well am i actually practicing what i preach because it's so much easier to say oh well i know that i liked well it's it's both easier and i think a little dangerous to say oh well i liked this the first time hopefully this new time will be good because there's still the risk of getting burned by your assumed familiarity mm-hmm. so i'm thinking about something like uh, Riverdale which trades on familiarity with the Archie Comics property but then has very little to do with the actual um quote unquote source material.
2: Well, and we were talking about this earlier too with the discussion of um you know you've ruined my childhood. Uh you know sort of I hate
1: that phrase by the way. Right. I think I've mentioned that on the show before, but I hate that.
2: Right. And it's I I think that it it taps into the dangers of nostalgia of you know you you consumed something as a kid uh, and anytime you're gonna go back and revisit it, whether it be by simply reconsuming consuming it or by like consuming a remake or a remix or what have you, um, those two things are always going to be intention not not the actual uh original property but your memory of that original property, and especially if it's something that you enjoyed and can and liked as a kid. You've got those rose-colored glasses on, and they can be incredibly red-tinted. One of the homeworks I was considering assigning for this week, and then didn't for a variety of reasons, was uh, the Young Jedi Knights book series, which were, like, the first books that really got me into reading. Um, But I was, frankly, terrified of even the thought of rereading it, because I'm sure they were bad. Uh, But I have, like, such a strong positive association with them that... Uh, if if there were to be like some remake of them, and I would read them, I think that those would be an incredible tension.
1: Well, and I do think it's important when we think back on the media that we consumed and loved as children to differentiate between "I loved this thing" and "this thing was good." Hmm. Um, I think that is still a differentiate. I think that's still something that people have trouble with. Um. It feels like we exist in a culture now where any criticism is viewed as antagonism, uh, particularly when you're talking about a property that has nostalgic value to people. And I, I think that we need to, to remember that there can be a difference between this was important to me and I loved it as a child and, oh, this isn't... Like, admitting something isn't as good as you remember it being is not the same as admitting... Is like taking away your experience with it.
2: Right. Like you had fun as a kid consuming it. Now you wouldn't, uh, but that doesn't like devalue the enjoyment that you had 20 years ago.
0: Sure, and I think increasingly the things we like and the things we hate become core parts of how we see ourselves as people. Mm-hmm. So if someone uh, sings the praises of something we hate or attacks something we don't like, they have othered themselves and it feels like you are being personally attacked. And uh, that's the thing is I people in general – want to differentiate themselves from the other and defend themselves from that other and sometimes take the active defense of attacking someone who just really has a different opinion sometimes about something like a TV show or a game.
1: Well, it's why this whole, um, uh, the the question of like tying your identity to the media that you love, it's one of the reasons that, I, I get so prickly whenever people talk about, like, or whenever people want to deride the efforts to diversify media, because I think one of the things that makes us attached to media is being able to see ourselves or being able to identify ourselves in the things that we love. You know, and I feel very strongly that everybody should get that chance. And also that, because, like, if somebody sees themselves in something that you don't is not a valid reason to um, is not a valid reason for criticism. Like there are a lot of valid things to criticize about media today. I don't think that's one of them. Um, That might be be straying a little off topic, but I do think it's connected to this idea of our, um, the media we consume being part of our identities and helping to shape how we see ourselves.
0: Yeah. I think it's absolutely connected. Uh, and you make an excellent point where not only does representation matter, but if someone is going to take the attack where, well, I'm not attacking this because I don't see myself in it. I'm attacking it because it's bad. Okay. If you have a specific criticism, I'm okay with that up to the point where you apply the same standards to the media where you do see yourself. If you're equally critical of a character like uh, Jane Foster Thor or Kamala Khan as you are to someone who looks like you and thinks like you through their character's behaviors, okay. But I don't think there's that kind of intellectual honesty coming from a lot of these criticisms,
1: And I think a lot of it is people mistaking discomfort with a piece of media for a lack of quality in that media. Yes. Like I think, I think there becomes a feeling of this made me uncomfortable or I don't feel connected to this because I don't see myself in it. That must mean that it's bad.
2: Or going back to nostalgia, like it's not how I remembered it was. They didn't make what I wanted them to make.
1: Which I think, going way, way back to the beginning of our episode, I think is where a lot of the people who reacted negatively to The Last Jedi, I think that's why. It was not exactly the movie that they wanted it to be, which made it a bad movie. Mm -hmm. I don't agree with that. Caveat. Um... (laughs) But I think that that was—I think that that was what was happening with a lot of the negative reactions to it.
0: I, I heard a great statement on that particular topic uh, when people who say they're hardcore Star Wars fans uh, hated the Last Jedi, hated the Force Awakens, and hated the prequels. Well, you hate more than half of this franchise. What it is? Are you really a fan of that franchise?
1: <laughs> Wonderful. Ah. Well, that is going to do it for us today. Um, Pete, how do we exit the show?
2: (laughs) Uh, Contact info for us, for the show, for Josh. Right.
1: Um, As always, if you'd like to keep up with the show, uh, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or SoundCloud. You can find us on Google Play. You can find us on Stitcher. Basically, wherever your preferred method of listening to podcasts is, that's where you can find us. Uh, And while you're there, please leave us, uh, please rate and review us. Uh, That helps other people find us, keeps us at the top of the iTunes charts, uh, and makes us feel good about ourselves. And as you all know, I am a fairly delicate flower when it comes to positive feedback. Uh, You can find me uh, on all places online at Magical Martha. My Twitter feed has been particularly good this week, if I do say so myself. Uh, Pete, where can people find you?
2: You can find me on Twitter at Pico3000, P-I-K-O 3000.
1: Uh, And you can find the show at our home on the web at homeworkpodcast.com. You can find us on Twitter at D-Y-D-Y-H podcast. Uh, Or you can find us on Facebook uh, just by searching for the name of our show. Josh, thank you so much for joining us. Um, Uh, If people...
0: Oh, sorry. Oh, well, I was going to say, I, I was going to make sure people knew where to find me if this is the time for such a thing.
1: It is. I was going to say, if you would like people to be able to find you on the Internet, where could they do that?
0: Well, uh, my Twitter handle is at Doc Stout. And if you this formative media and nostalgia are topics of interest to you, uh, my other show is called 40 Going on 14. I'm one of uh, four hosts. And this is something we've talked about every week now for coming up on five years. We're at uh, episode 225, I think, we recorded Ooh, this week. Good on you guys. Wow,
1: congratulations.
0: Uh, thank you. Uh, yeah, you can find us uh, at uh, www.40go14.com or search for 40 going on 14 on Facebook. Uh, all of us are uh, my generation, Gen X guys, who look every week at something that was formative to us in our childhood, uh, whether that's a TV show or a movie, very much like what we did today. And we compare it against its modern equivalent uh, and take a deep dive into how it's changed and how we feel about it. Yeah, every week.
1: Uh, It's a super fun show. I got to be a guest star on it just about a year ago. I got to talk all about uh, women comic creators which was so thoroughly my jam it was you know super fun to record
0: all right well thanks uh, for having me this was a great show yeah. yeah thanks for being on pete
1: what are we talking about next episode
0: yeah next episode we are talking about
2: body image uh with my fiance Maron returning to the podcast uh she is assigning the 2007 musical hairspray with john travolta uh, not to be confused with the original 1980s John Waters movie, so make sure you're watching the... I am
1: going I'm going to have to personally thank her for not making me watch a John Waters film. <laughs> Just
2: Aww. Jeff one uh, I, I was looking forward to it. Um, but yeah, make sure you're watching the right one, which is the more modern musical. Um, I am going the complete opposite direction on body image and assigning a movie with some really, really, really ridiculously good-looking people. I'm assigning 2001's Zoolander.
1: Uh, And I am assigning a YA novel because obviously uh, this book is called The Art of Starving by Sam J. Miller. All right. That is going to do it for us all today. Class dismissed. (laughs)